You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Joe Scarborough joins the Post to discuss his new book, Saving Freedom, which explores the Truman Doctrine and how it transformed the U.S. and its role in the world. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today, it's my special pleasure to welcome Joe Scarborough, who's the author of a new book, Saving Freedom, the story of Truman, the Cold War, and saving Western civilization. It's been getting very good reviews in the Washington Post and the New York Times. As you may know, Joe is the host of an MSNBC show, Morning Joe, that appears every morning. And full disclosure, I'm an occasional guest on that show. This morning, I won't have Willie Geist and, and uh, Mika Brzezinski to help me question uh, Joe, but we're going to talk about his book. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, about politics and life in the era of Donald Trump and, and soon uh, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe, welcome uh, to our show. Uh, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. I, I had tried, uh, for people watching, I tried to call you a couple days ago. Uh, and then I get I get word of this the next day, so I was very excited about it. But the reason I had called you wasn't related to this. I had just gotten a pass from Mika. I said, you know, when we had you on the show, I said, you know, I'm going to see if David will let me follow him around when COVID lifts and go to some of the extraordinary places he goes. I'll I'll carry I'll, I'll just carry his briefcase and 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 take notes for him. And Mika Mika gave me permission, so. When COVID lives, I'm going to be bothering you and and uh, trying to be your, your travel buddy for a couple I, of extraordinary I'd, places I'd like you go. Sell, I'd like to sell tickets for that, uh, Joe. We'll 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 see if we could get a, an audience. Um, I, I've always needed somebody to to, uh, to 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 be a companion on these on these trips. Let's let's start by talking about uh, Harry Truman. Uh, in your introduction, you describe him as this strange little man from Missouri. Uh, who suddenly, in April 1945, became president. Uh, you and I have, have talked about how American sailors at sea wept when they heard the news that Franklin Roosevelt was dead. They knew so little about Truman. And he went on to be, in your words, a person who, who helped save Western civilization. Tell us how you came to write about Harry Truman and, and your own journey in, in beginning to see him as a great figure in our in our modern history. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you you talk about the reaction to uh, the death of FDR that uh, sailors wept when they heard of his death. I remember my mother uh, when when I was younger telling me that that uh, you know they they were from rural Georgia. They would not have survived uh, the Great Depression most likely without FDR and the New Deal. Uh, and and helping him out. She was born in 1932, the fourth child, uh, of, and and said that it was just they were struggling. And when FDR died, she said that everybody in Dalton, Georgia, everybody where she was, um, were scared. It was like uh, she said it was like a king dying. It was he 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 had gotten America through so much, <clears throat> and it's it's interesting though. My family, uh, my mom's family, were all yellow dog Democrats, as we say in the South, and were were Baptists. Uh, I asked her about Truman, and she laughed. And 
the Dalton, the, the, the Clarks of rural Georgia, uh, who lived out in the country, uh, farmers who survived uh, the Great Depression only through FDR's New Deal. Uh, she laughed and said they even looked down on him as sort of a country bumpkin. Didn't didn't think he was up to the task of it. So here you have a guy that was being called a strange little man by media elites, uh, by Washington insiders, and by the Clarks of Dalton, Georgia, all at the same time. And it just it, it I, I thought it drove the point home of how underestimated he was from the start. Uh, and and yet. Uh, I think most historians now would consider him a great or a near great president if you look at his foreign policy achievements, because the world that we live in, we live in because of Harry Truman. I I, I had been pulled to uh, Truman for that reason, uh, sort of the populist in me loved that story. But also, I loved having a picture of a Democrat and a Republican. Uh, one who served from, you know, starting in 1945, the other who started serving in 1981, um, who both worked in tandem together across generations, uh, and and that there was this unbroken line of of Republican and Democratic presidents alike uh, across nine presidents uh, who carried forward the same, for the most part, the same policy prescription for defeating the Soviet Union because there was that coordination, um, b because uh, every one of those presidents uh, used the analytical framework that uh, for foreign policy that, that Truman put into place in early 1947, uh, we ended up defeating the Soviet Union. And I thought it was a remarkable achievement for the country, a remarkable achievement for our diplomats, but also a remarkable achievement for Republican and Democratic politicians alike. There, this story, the story of Harry Truman, is really the story of bipartisan cooperation. So, Joe, I, I, it's one of the things that interested me in the book when I when I first read it. Um, leadership in politics is mysterious. America in 1945, at the end of World War II, was exhausted. People just wanted to get home and get back to work and marriage and life. And Truman uh, saw a threat coming that was so serious that he roused people from this understandable post-war uh, uh, retreat and, and said, no, folks, we have to fight a new enemy. Talk a little bit about that, about, about that quality of leadership and where it came from. This was an unlikely vessel, if you will, for that kind of leadership. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we could we could talk about, I think, three of the most successful post-war presidents, uh, from Harry Truman to LBJ. If you if you look at what LBJ achieved domestically, it was extraordinary. Uh, to Ronald Reagan, and here you have three gentlemen who didn't graduate from Ivy League colleges. Uh, Reagan, of course, graduated from Eureka College. LBJ graduated from. Uh, I think Southwest Texas Teachers College, Harry Truman from Spalding Commercial College, uh, and were under, all underestimated. I mean, LBJ was was looked down upon and mocked and ridiculed. Few people would have ever guessed that he would create uh, the social revolution, the civil rights revolution that he created in 1964 and 1965. Ronald Reagan was mocked and ridiculed 
and underestimated by elites. He still is. I, I, I somehow managed to get through all four episodes of the Showtime documentary on the Reagans, and it shows it. Like poor Edmund Morris uh, and many others, they still haven't figured out the essence of Ronald Reagan. The same was true of Harry Truman. Uh, Truman was a guy that was called a rube by the New York Times when he first got to the Senate in 1934. Uh, six years later, FDR wouldn't even endorse his reelection to the Senate. Um, he was, he was uh, four years later, the same dying president, FDR, uh, would, they would reluctantly put Truman in the position uh, of the number two uh, because uh, there were people who feared Henry Wallace being president of the United States if FDR died and FDR himself assumed he was going to die. And when that happened, he was mocked and ridiculed as a second Missouri compromise. Uh, he, Time Magazine called him the mousy little man from Missouri. Um, uh, FDR's own chief of staff, when they brought up Truman's name, said, who the hell is Harry Truman? And one person that was in the smoke-filled room that made the decision on Truman, uh, when they asked, how in the hell did you guys pick Harry Truman? His response was, we were all just tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so you think about it, though, and, and, and think about how I agree with Henry Luce's view that the world is not shaped by... Um, by uh, cold, uh, uh, unfeeling outside events, but men and women uh, shape the events in this world. And think about Harry Truman, the difference it would have made if Henry Wallace had been president of the United States, a guy who was far too ambivalent about the Soviet Union, and uh, some, some would say uh, far too sympathetic to Stalin and the Soviet Union, uh, instead of Harry Truman. Uh, it, it would have made all the difference in the world. And the fact that Truman ended up being vice president and ended up surprising everyone. I mean, you know, it was Stimson who took him to the side after his first cabinet meeting uh, as president of the United States and said, hey, by the way, uh, we've got this thing called the Manhattan Project. Uh, and yet Truman was able to take that information in. And I think much of it had to do, David, with the fact that he surrounded himself with uh, the best and the brightest, the, the people that... Uh, our good friend Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas called the wise men. You had General George C. Marshall, who helped organize the Allies' victory in World War II. You had uh, Dean Acheson, uh, one of the, the great uh, diplomats of the, the 20th century. Uh, you had George Kennan, of course, who wrote the long telegram and first warned of the, the Soviet threat and talked about containment. And you had Avril Harriman, uh, a guy who was so, um, who was so prepared uh, to be ambassador to the Soviet Union and face uh, face down Stalin so, directly. Joe, so yeah, what, that that made a made a difference. He he uh, he did he did have those uh, qualities. He had a, an, an eye for for talent. He also had the ability to sometimes def defy what those brilliant advisors were telling him. I'd be interested in your describing what you think the lesson of this Truman story that you've laid out in your book is. For our president-elect, Joe, Joe Biden, Joe Biden is a man who for parts of his career was overlooked. Certainly in the early months of the, of the primary season, he looked like nobody's candidate. Uh, and then in South Carolina, he, he just found himself, found a constituency that, that strongly supported him. What, what if you were to, to, to say to Joe Biden, here are the lessons you want to take from the experience of Harry Truman, what, what would several of them be? 
Well, I think I think the first one, and it's personal for me because it's one that I used when I was an inexperienced 31-year-old congressman coming into Washington. I didn't know anybody here. Uh, I didn't know. I, I had never been on Capitol Hill before. I hired a chief of staff, and I said, "Your job is to make me the the this, the dumbest guy in the room at all times." And my chief of sta staff laughed, and I said to her, "I said, well, it's it's not going to be that easy." But 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 make me the dumbest guy in the room at all times. Surround me by gifted people who can make me smarter. Harry Truman did that. He surrounded himself by the best and the brightest. I think Joe Biden has started. Uh, his selections are very positive uh, uh, along those lines. So he's surrounding himself by very talented people. The second thing is listen to them. Uh, Truman, for the most part, listened to his advisors. You read about what happened with the Truman Doctrine and the creation of the Truman Doctrine, what happened with the creation of the Marshall Plan. Um, uh, with NATO, uh, Truman got, his advisors came in, uh, gave him guidance. He said, oh, for the most part, he said, okay, go with it. There were times like uh, his, uh, his, painful, um, his painful disagreement with George Marshall on the creation of Israel that Truman went his own way. But I think the first lesson was surround yourself by good men and women. Uh, the second thing is uh, take their advice uh, unless uh, you have a good reason not to. Uh, and uh, I think the third lesson has to do with bipartisanship. Um, we've had presidents over the 20th, 21st century, over the first 20 years, uh, that really haven't known how to work the Senate and how to work the House. George W. Bush had very little use for the House or the Senate. Barack Obama, of course, was a senator himself, but no sooner had he gotten to Washington, D.C. that than Harry Reid had said, hey, you don't really like it here. Um, why don't you why, why don't you run for president? And even Democrat, senior Democratic senators told me and told anybody else who would listen throughout his two terms that he really didn't know how to work the United States Senate. Uh, and um, and of course, Donald Trump has had contempt. Uh, for 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 Congress as well. So I think Biden, like Harry Truman, uh, was a creature of the Senate, like LBJ, and I would just I would just tell him to to let everybody around him know they're not going to get everything they want. They're going to be extremely frustrated. They can just go ahead and and disconnect from Twitter and disconnect from social media uh, networks because they're going to make people on the left and make people on the right angry. And yes, they're going to have to work with people who want to kill them politically. That's the nature of, of, of James Madison's checks and balances. Uh, and Truman understood that and he stayed engaged. And he always, he kept working hard on Vandenberg. He kept hard, working hard on the other Republicans until he so, got the deal he needed. So what, what would uh, Harry Truman have said about Donald Trump. I mean, and give me the printable part, the part that we can actually broadcast on on uh, on on television. What what would he have made of a, of a of a of a leader with the characteristics of our forty fifth president? I I I think he would have been as shocked and disgusted as he was uh, with um, Joe McCarthy because there were so many parallels. There's a telegram, I saw Michael Beschloss tweet out a telegram that Harry Truman had drafted to descend to Joe McCarthy, Joe, Joe McCarthy uh, and um, 
discretion uh, and, and possibly an eight or two uh, got the uh, got the better of him and prevented him from sending that. But I, I think he would look upon him as he looked upon McCarthy that this was a demagogue. Uh, this was a guy that was lying, making up things as he went. I think he would have been uh, been disgusted by the fact that Donald Trump, uh, in the middle of COVID and throughout his entire administration, uh, said that he's not responsible for anything that goes bad, but it's responsible for all things that go good. For a, for a plain-spoken man like Truman, who believed that the buck stopped at the president's desk, uh, I, I, I think Donald Trump uh, would have been, uh, as president, would have been a shocking development for him. So, uh, Joe, one of the uh, mysteries for me about these last uh, four years that you and I have uh, covered and, and talked about often uh, is a quality that I've found in, in American politics pretty much throughout our history, I'm going to call our, our BS detector, our ability to, to see uh, the, the kind of populist uh, uh, rabble-rousers come down the pike, uh, Father Coughlin, Joe McCarthy, you mentioned, Huey Long. But there's been something in the American character that you know, while I get some followers, people go, I don't think so. I, I don't, I, it doesn't seem right to me. And, and somehow that seems to be failing us. And I, I'm curious about your uh, explanation of why. What, what's happened? Uh, how, how, do, how are we a country where more than 70 million of our citizens thought this was the right guy after everything that's happened the last four years? How do you, how do you see that? It's a great question. I, I, I don't have the answer right now. I was shocked that the race was as close as it was. I shocked that over 70 million people voted for a man who was calling for the arrest of his political opponent two weeks before the campaign, who was putting pressure on his attorney general to not only arrest uh, his political opponent, but also his political opponent's family, uh, a man who refused to guarantee a peaceful transition of power a man who was caught on tape lying through his teeth about a pandemic that's going to end up killing most likely 350, 400,000 Americans, uh, maybe even more. We may end up losing as many people to COVID as we lost in World War II. Um, so I don't really have that answer. I will say that when I get discouraged and I think that this Republican Party is more feckless and spineless than any party uh, in American history and, and think there's no hope for the future. Uh, I read Larry Tai's book on McCarthy, and I see that even one of my political heroes, Dwight Eisenhower, um, campaigned with Joe McCarthy even after he attacked General George Marshall, a man whom Eisenhower owed his career to. Um, and uh, you sit there and it just really it takes your breath away to see that that McCarthy held the country uh, in that uh, that much sway, and people like Eisenhower, again, one of my political heroes, um, that Eisenhower could have spoken out in Wisconsin against Joe McCarthy, and he was so popular it wouldn't have hurt him, and yet he refused to do that and refused so, to even defend George Marshall. So, Joe, the the question that I've heard you pose often on the air, and I, I think uh, many millions of people have the same question. What's going to happen to the Republican Party with Trump out of the White House? Is the party going to rediscover 
uh, more backbone, more willingness to stand up to Trump? Are we going to see a new generation of leaders? What's your what's your your guess about where the Republican Party is going now? Well, Donald Trump has broken uh, so many uh, of the of sort of the political rules and political assumptions that I could be wrong again. I didn't think he was going to get elected. I didn't think he was going to do as well as he did in 2020. But I've just seen in the past uh, when when presidents leave office, uh, they become irrelevant fairly quickly. I know that a lot of Republicans attacked me for criticizing George W. Bush in his second term and you know, vicious attacks, even uh, worse attacks than uh, I, I've received over the past four years for criticizing Donald Trump. And um, after Bush left office, they started the same, started saying the same thing about George W. Bush that I did, that he was insufficiently conservative on deficits, on debt, that his foreign policy was too, too Wilsonian. So I think I think the same may happen with Donald Trump. Um, I think Donald Trump's enemies could only hope that he starts a television network because <laughs> you, can, you can ask Oprah, you can ask Al Gore. That's heavy sledding, baby. You want him worrying about a TV network every day because it, it won't take off, most likely. Uh, but I don't think he's going to have that sway. The power always goes to the person who is uh, the nominee of the party. So whoever that is in 2024 will be the person who um, who decides the future of the Republican Party. If it's Nikki Haley, it'll go in that direction. If it's Marco Rubio, it'll go in that direction. If it's uh, somebody like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley, uh, that's how the party will be defined. I, I, I do think, though, that uh, Trumpism is, is going to have... Um, a pretty short shelf life on the presidential level. I think like uh, Ross Perot and Pat Buchanan, though, I do think you'll have uh, a lot of congressional districts uh, where Trumpism will still hold sway for years to come. So, Joe, uh, before we leave uh, Trump, I just want to ask you a question I, I, I've heard uh, critics uh, raise, which is, why did uh, why did Joe uh, and and Mika give so much airtime to Donald Trump uh, before the 2016 election? Uh, and as you look back, um, is there is there anything you'd do differently in terms of the kind of uh, visibility that he had on, on your show and, and on TV generally? Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and it's obviously something that <laughs> that I've thought about an awful lot. Uh, over the past four or five years. I, so as far as having Trump on the air, um, and we had him on the air a lot, um, I, anybody that watched my show uh, regularly, watched Mika and me regularly, would know that we said repeatedly that any major presidential candidate that wanted to call into our show could call into our show. And we made the offer repeatedly. Other than Donald Trump, the only person to take us up on that um, was uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, who called in once or twice. Uh, and so we gave the invitation to every presidential candidate. Uh, I, would, I would be on the phone calling uh, Jeb Bush's people, a guy who I said openly I was supporting, uh, begging him to call in, wouldn't do it. 
Uh, Mika was constantly in touch with the Clinton campaign, went out to dinners with members of the Clinton campaign, went to lunches, did everything to try to get her to call in regularly. They just wouldn't do it. And so I, I suppose we shouldn't have made that offer to everybody, but Trump, and it's a good, it's a good lesson for politicians. If somebody offers you airtime, take the airtime. Uh, yeah. And Bush wouldn't do it as a front runner. Clinton wouldn't do it as a front runner. Um, so, and also, I, I do want to say, again, I, I, I hate to tick through this because it makes me sound defensive. But in early December, after the Paris attacks, I think at the end of November, early December of 2015, when Donald Trump came forward with the Muslim registry, um, I said, this is what Germany looked like in 1933. I could never vote for this man. Uh, he's not worthy of, of, of the Republican nomination. A week later, I hung up on him. Uh, in the middle of an interview uh, because he wouldn't answer our questions about the Muslim registry. A uh, week after that, we went after him very hard about Vladimir Putin, some clips that people saw throughout 2016 are still watching. You know, when it, before Super Tuesday, uh, he said it was disqualifying that he wouldn't, um, wouldn't condemn David Duke or the KKK. Uh, and said, this guy, you know, and, and asked a question to Washington Post column in February. Is this right. uh, how the party of so, Abraham Lincoln dies? So, so very critical about him. But let me say, you look at primetime, and I do, I do have a real problem with the three networks, cable news networks in primetime, showing his rallies and not showing the rallies of Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton. The fact there wasn't equal time and prime time across all the networks, I think, was a terrible mistake. So, Joe, as we go forward, one thing we can be sure of is that Donald Trump is going to want to take up as, as much of our national bandwidth as he can. Uh, and as, as we know, there's a way in which he's been irresistible for the news media. And I'd extend that to the print media as well as as well as TV. How do we get off that sugar high uh, and begin to treat him after January 20 as a, as a former president? I'm sure you've thought about that. How do you think the media is going to do at, at kind of, uh, uh, you know, get, getting away from this, this Trump uh, moment? Well, I want to answer that in one minute. Let me go back really quickly to your last question and tell you where I think we screwed up, if you don't mind, if that's okay. I do look back and, and look at the attention that we paid to the Hillary Clinton emails, which I thought I thought that was very legitimate at the time. I thought the Clinton Foundation, looking to the Clinton Foundation and how the Clintons uh, cashed in on public service, that was a legitimate question to ask. Hillary Clinton getting paid as much as she did by Goldman Sachs to give a speech or getting paid by state colleges, 250,000. I think all of that was legitimate, but obviously looking back on it, I think that we on Morning Joe, and I think other people in the media, paid way too much attention to that, especially if you look uh, at um, look at what we've, we've been through over the past four, five years. Getting to the second, to, to, to your question about what do we do moving forward, it is my hope that, um, that the news media treats him uh, like an ex-president when on on January the 20th at 12.01, and they don't uh, follow the sugar high. I suspect there are going to be some cable news networks. Uh, I suspect there are going to be some print 
uh, some some opinion writers that are going to do that. I know that we have deliberately tried uh, to um, shy away uh, from him unless it seems to be something that is a direct threat to our democracy over the past two, three, four weeks. Uh, and he has been able to, 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 to stay engaged uh, by doing shocking things, whether it's calling the Speaker of the House of uh, Pennsylvania's uh, legislature or what he's done with Michigan officials, what he's done in Georgia. And we obviously have to respond to that, but we don't have to show his lies. Uh, I think it's different so, than print media. You need you need to print the lies and explain why they're lies. But but I think I think we really um, we have a responsibility at least on our show to not broadcast the lies. So I, I have a last uh, question before we run out of time, uh, and that's uh, what about Joe Scarborough? You're in the news business. Uh, you're you're a colleague of mine, uh, but you also are a former congressman. Uh, you think a lot about politics, and I wonder if there's any part of you that thinks about getting back into politics directly someday. Well, it's, it's interesting timing for that question because I was just telling Mika last night that because we we heard the news that Phil Griffin was leaving um, MSNBC, and I told Mika I said it's interesting. I went to work with Phil in 2003 and was expecting to stay in TV for two or three years before I got back involved in politics and ran for Senate or ran for governor or did something else. Um, 17 years later, <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, and I do, I do, I think about it, I think about it an awful lot. Um, and I think right now, David, I've got to figure out where my home is. It's not in the Republican Party. Um, I could, I could never be a Republican again after the way uh, the party's acted over the past four years, after the way it's uh, thumbed its nose at, at constitutional norms, sat silently by while the president attacked the free press, uh, while the president tried to have his political opponent arrested, while the president refuses to accept uh, the results of this, uh, of this election, uh, tried to throw out over 80 million votes uh, for Joe Biden. Uh, but I, I'm not exactly sure right now where uh, my political home would be or who would have me. Uh, I don't know if there's a place in this Democratic Party for a conservative to moderate Democrat. And I don't know if an independent uh, can get elected for dog catcher. So um, I'll just kind of sit back and wait. I would, I, 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 have, I have no problem saying that that of all the jobs I've had, other than being a high school football coach, my favorite job uh, was being a member of Congress. It was a, it was it was a hard job. I had to slog home uh, every weekend. I, I spent more time in Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, I think, than I, I did in Washington and layovers. Uh, but I I love people. People always would be, would say, "Oh, you must have hated it." I loved every second of it. And it's still rewarding when I have constituents that I see in Pensacola that say, you won't remember this, but. And then they'll tell me the story about how I got a family member home for a funeral from overseas or or how I called. Uh, somebody came up to me a couple of years ago and said, you won't remember this, but you saved my parents' farm. The, FB, the, um, the IRS had been conducting an audit for 10 years 
and they, it was a nightmare for them, and they, they were about to go bankrupt uh, with all the fees and the bills. And uh, all I did was I called up the IRS. I said, listen, here, I had a, I had a friend in, in, in the Pensacola branch. I said, listen, can you tell your superiors, if you want to arrest them, go ahead and arrest them, but if you don't, wrap up your damn investigation and get the hell off their farm. And so they, Joey, they, they said, they said, they said, thanks, Joe. And they wrapped up their investigation and they got off their damn farm. <laughs> so that it was nice to be able to help people. So I, I sadly, we're at the end of our of our half hour. Uh, folks, I think you, you've you've uh, heard uh, from uh, a man who has not lost interest in politics. Uh, in no. the meantime, we're going to we're going to uh, look forward to, to talking with Joe. Uh, uh, in the mornings. Joe, thank you so much for, for being with us. Uh, your, your new book, uh, Saving Freedom, uh, has been getting some, some great reviews. Congratulations on that. Uh, and thank you, for, thank you for, for, for joining Washington Post Live. We will be uh, back um, uh, at two o'clock Eastern time today when my colleague Frances Stead Sellers will focus on climate change and the economy. Her guests include economics professor Mariana Mazzucato, and former presidential candidate uh, and philanthropist Tom Steyer. And then tomorrow uh, at 11, uh, please uh, join me when my guest uh, on Washington Post Live will be the uh, chief executive of Accenture, top uh, consulting firm, Julie Sweet. So uh, from Washington Post Live, uh, thanks for joining us this morning and we look forward to seeing you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.